so last week, we had a little bit of a change of plans with what we did with our sermon. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we had planned to continue in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we're going to be doing today. And we're, we were going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer, but then we sort of had, you know, a lot of people were away, and I think there was some sickness, and so it was just sparse attendance. And so I sort of decided at the leading of the Holy Spirit that, hey, let, let's sort of do something a little bit different. We'll hold off on continuing in the Gospel of Matthew and looking at the Lord's Prayer. We'll save that for the next week, which is today, of course. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to sort of pick up where we left off. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in this through to Easter, Easter, and in fact, even a little bit after Easter. And today we're in chapter 6, so you can open up your Bibles and flip there. Matthew chapter 6, specifically, we're looking at verses 5 through 15. And this is the Lord's Prayer here. We're still in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. So here's Jesus. He's teaching his disciples. That's sort of how it starts. But then uh, crowds are gathering and they come around him. And now you have sort of this huge mass of people and they're listening to Jesus preach and teach the disciples and this huge crowd. And, and as he's teaching, one of the things he winds up teaching on is the matter of prayer. And this is certainly a, a thing of central importance in the life of, of one who belongs to the Lord, the life of a follower of Christ, one who belongs to God. If we think of part of what is at the heart of being a child of God is having a relationship with him. And if we have a relationship with him, then naturally sort of what's at the heart of that relationship is going to be communing with him and actually conversing with him and talking with him. Right? So this is important in our life as those who belong to the Lord. And so Jesus says, well, this is important as one who belongs to, to him, who, who is in, in him. Well, let's talk about this. What is prayer? What, what does it look like? How is one to pray? And so Jesus here winds up having this time of cheat teaching in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount on prayer and sort of what it ought to look like. What is sort of good, faithful, biblical prayer? And so he winds up, as he's talking about prayer here, he winds up giving the Lord's Prayer. Right, in teaching this prayer to, to really sort of set an example, a sort of pattern that we can sort of model our prayers after. And I think that often as we come to the Lord's Prayer, it's a prayer that is widely known, right? Most Christians could recite it, right? They know it by heart, by memory. Maybe you even grew up in a church. We don't happen to do this at New Hope Chapel, but maybe you even grew up in a church where every single Sunday you recited the Lord's Prayer, and so you know it by heart. But I think it's one of those, those passages in Scripture. It's a prayer that, in fact, even though we know the words, all too often, we don't really know the substance of it. It's sort of, yep, I can recite it, I know all the words, but well, what's being said? What's sort of the content? What is Jesus teaching us here as he's teaching us about prayer? And he gives us this prayer as sort of a model and a pattern. What is he really teaching us about prayer? And I think for a lot of us, we sort of don't really know. It's like, yeah, we know the words, but we just don't know sort of the substance of it all and what, what our takeaway ought to be as we learn from the Lord's Prayer. And so I think that this is something that's important to really come to and say, well, what does Jesus have to teach us here on the matter of prayer and how we're to be praying? And so we're going to take a look at this, and in fact, we can dive right in now. The start of the passage is not actually the Lord's Prayer itself, but before he even gives the Lord's Prayer, he does a little bit of teaching on prayer generally. And so we're starting at verse 5, and, and here's what he says. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
right? This is something that, that was present in Jesus' day. You can sort of think of the religious leaders, and they want to look all spiritual, right? They want to be sort of these super followers of God in the sight of the people. So what would they do? Well, they, you know, uh, wherever lots of people are, whether it's in the synagogues, right, whether it's sort of on the street corners where people will see them, they'll go and, and they'll hang out there and they'll sort of belt out these wonderful loud prayers just for everyone to hear them praying to God and so that people can sort of have this response of, man, look at those guys. They, they certainly are close to the Lord. They're these, these super spiritual people who are super close to God and we're just sort of nothing like them and they'll have the approval of the people, right? That was sort of the mindset of a lot of the religious leaders and they did that and Jesus is saying, that's not what, what prayer ought to be like, right? It shouldn't be about seeking the approval of man, right? And in fact, these people who are praying this way, it's very much two-faced and, and hypocritical. They're putting on this facade. They want to be seen as super spiritual people, but in reality, they're quite the opposite, right? They're very much the opposite, and as they're doing this, there's nothing that's sort of God-centered in what they're doing. It's man-centered. They just want man's approval. They just want to look good, and so they want to look super spiritual, but in fact, they're quite the opposite and very hypocritical in doing this, and Jesus says they basically, they have their reward in full. Whatever they approval they may gain from man, that's all they're going to get for any sort of reward, because the Father is certainly not going to reward them at all for this type of prayer, because that's not what prayer is about. That's not what it should look like. But rather, he says, this is verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Right? And this isn't to say, like, oh, there's no place for public prayer, right? I mean, we pray publicly as a part of our service, but, but our mindset isn't about we're just gaining the approval of man, right? That's sort of what, what Jesus is attacking here. But he says you shouldn't be praying in all the public settings, not that there's no place for public prayer, but you shouldn't be doing that for the sake of gaining the approval of man, but rather this conversation, that's what prayer is, you're talking to God, this conversation you should be having with God, it shouldn't be about doing it in front of people for their pr- approval, but naturally the response, if you're not doing that, is just to go into some quiet place, right? Go into your home, right? Go into some place where there aren't tons of people around to go and see you and approve of you, but rather just come before God, be alone with him in this quiet place in solitude. Just come before him and talk to him, right? Just sort of very naturally and authentically and not seeking the approval of man, come before God in prayer and talk to him. And what's the result of that? He says, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There'll be blessing. For those people, the hypocrites who stand on the street corners, they just want to be heard, right? There's no reward from the Father for them, but for the one who prays in a genuine and authentic way and does so not for man's approval, but just because he wants to to converse with his heavenly Father. He just wants to fellowship with him and commune with him and talk with him and does so in a genuine way in his presence, not sort of out in the public sphere for man's approval. That person will have a reward from the Father. Right. Again, it's not to say there's no place for public prayer. Indeed, we do corporate prayer here as part of the church. But it's not about man's approval, right? And Jesus is saying you shouldn't be praying publicly for man's approval, but rather in quiet, right, alone with the Lord. But then he goes on. He continues to teach on prayer here. And this is verse 7. He says, and when you pray, 
do not keep on babbling like pagans. Other translations might say something like heap up empty words. This sort of a range of meaning of, of sort of what, what the word that's used here in Greek means. It can sort of mean either literally like nonsensical speech or it's just sort of like empty, pointless words. They sort of are empty and vain and have no real purpose. It can be speaking of sort of endless repetition. It can sort of be pointless wordiness. You know, you're just sort of long-winded and saying the same things over and over again. It's just sort of empty, pointless speech. That's sort of the sense of what he's talking about here. When you pray, don't just keep on heaping up these empty, pointless words like the pagans do, right? Don't do that, he says, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him, right? God already knows what you need. He already knows your heart, so just come before him in this genuine, authentic way and just bear your heart and bring your requests. God already knows. And so, right, there isn't this need to sort of have these wonderful, eloquent words or sort of formulaic prayers. That, that's certainly part of what would have been the case for the Gentiles. They would have had sort of their magical words. And if I just sort of use these words over and over again and lots of repetition, surely my deity will hear me and approve of me, uh, and then I'll get what I want. That would sort of be the mindset, sort of these pointless, empty words that the Gentiles would have just been uttering to their deity, trying to sort of uh, earn the approval of the deity and get what they want. And, and Jesus is saying, this, there's no need for that. That's pointless. Don't heap up sort of these empty, pointless, ongoing words for no reason, formulaic words, special words, right? There's no need for that. God already knows your heart. He already knows what you need. Just come before him reverently, authentically, genuinely, just conversing with him, bearing your heart to him. That is what prayer ought to look like. And he goes on, and now he says, this then, this is verse 9, this then is how you should pray. And now we get to the Lord's Prayer itself, right? And in a sense, you could say maybe this should be called not the Lord's Prayer, but the Disciples' Prayer. It's given by the Lord, so we call it the Lord's Prayer. But it's, in fact, I would say not exactly what he would pray, right? A lot of it is what he would pray, but you think of sort of you get to verse 12 and forgive us our debts. That's not something that Jesus himself would ever pray. He wouldn't pray for forgiveness. He has no need of it. So it's not that this is sort of necessarily the Lord's Prayer in the sense of this is what he himself prays to the Father, but rather it's the Lord's Prayer in the sense of the prayer given by the Lord to his disciples as an example of how they are to pray, right? And so this is the example that he gives to the disciples, the prayer for the disciples from the Lord. Maybe it would be a better name for it, but, but rather long-winded, of course. But here's what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right, and hallowed sort of an old-fashioned word that I'd say we probably don't use too much in our English today, but because this is sort of part of the historic you know, translation of, of this verse, it sort of sticks because of tradition, but sort of revered is, is a good, maybe more modern word to use uh, to translate this. So, our Father in heaven, let your name be revered, or maybe a better way to translate or more fluid is, may your name be revered. Right? This is, this is the Father in heaven, and he is to be revered. May your name be revered. Sort of an opening word of prayer, uh, of worship, that is, in this prayer. As he opens it up, what, is, what does Jesus do? He addresses the one he's, he's praying to, and basically it's, in a sense, a word of worship. Right? May your name, let your name be revered. This is how all people are to uh, come before the Father. This is how all people are sort of to regard the Father and, and his name with great reverence. Right? because it is God himself, and so he and his name are to be revered. That's what's being said. Then going on, your kingdom come. Again, probably a little bit better translation for today's English, just sort of, may your kingdom come. 
right? And this is sort of, in a sense, what we're going to see here in verse, verse 10 as we read on, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is sort of a prayer affirming, in a sense, I'm on the same page with you, Heavenly Father, right? What your, you know, your kingdom coming, that is your will that you seek to bring about in the world, right? As, as Jesus is saying this, right? Jesus is the one bringing and ushering in the kingdom of God. In our time today, right, the kingdom of God is present, right? And it's moving forward and it's growing and more entering into it. And one day Christ will come, he'll return, and he will usher in his kingdom in all its fullness and glory, right? This is, this is God's plan to bring his kingdom. And, and this is just sort of an affirmation of, I'm on the same page with you. Amen to you, Father, with regard to what you are doing and your plan. And I'm on the same page. I'm not opposed to you and what you're doing, but I am for you. So your kingdom come, Right? May your kingdom come. Christ is doing that. God continues to do that. Uh, grow his kingdom in our world today and we'll bring it in all of its fullness. And there's just an affirmation of that. May your kingdom come. Amen. And then he goes on. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And certainly, when we think of the will of God, we can talk about it in, in a whole host of, of different senses, right? We can talk about sort of different nuances or meanings to the will of God or different wills of God. I'm not going to go into uh, sort of all of that. That sort of deserves its own sermon, talking about all the sort of different wills of God. But here, the idea, the, the sort of will of God that is meant is really your will be done in the sense of may mankind, just as angels perfectly do this, may mankind ultimately, right, do your will in the sense of obey your commands. Do that which pleases you. So here, will is in the sense of God's commands and that which pleases him. So, right, here's what he says. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So God's will, his commands, that which pleases him in heaven, that is the case. His will is done in, in heaven. His perfect angels do obey his every command, perfectly so. They do all that pleases him. But the reality is that on earth, that will of God, that his commands, that which pleases him, which he delights in, that is not always done. Man, day after day after day, uh, rebels against God and his will and his commands, right? And that which pleases him. But, but certainly it is right to have the heart attitude to desire to see on earth, to see God obeyed, to see his will be done, to see that which pleases him be done, right? And I would say even more so, there's really a linking of this with the start of verse 10, which is your kingdom come. That is, may your kingdom come. And as your kingdom comes, and as it grows, as more and more come into the fold and become followers of Christ, then what will naturally happen is God's will will be done, right? Being obedient to his commands, his commands being obeyed, that which pleases, which pleases him happening and taking place, that's going to happen ever increasingly as God's kingdom grows. As more and more come into the fold and have new hearts and a love for God and want to live for him more and more, the will of God, his commands and all that pleases him, more and more that will be done on the earth just as it is done in heaven, right? It won't be done perfectly on the earth until Christ returns and, and there's sort of the new earth, right? The, the whole new created order and everything is good and glorious and perfect, right? Ultimately, that will be the case. Uh, but so that's what's being said there. So then going on, we get to verse 11 here. And now we get to sort of the petitions, right? The requests. Give us today our daily bread. And this is something that's sort of in our culture in our day and here in the U.S., for the most part, we probably take for granted. You know, yeah, give us today our daily bread, but probably we're not 
overly worried about whether we're actually going to have dinner on the table today or tomorrow or the day after. But for most people throughout most of history, it wasn't a given that there was going to be a good nourishing meal that evening or the next day or you know, several weeks down the road. Right? That was sort of an unknown. Will there be a good harvest this year? You know, will there be enough food to get me through the year? Or, or will there be famine and then I won't be able to, to provide for my family and so forth? This was very much an unknown for most people through most of history. And even today, it's a bit of an unknown for many in our world today. We're sort of distanced from that. But it's sort of a very natural prayer, right? Recognizing that there are things we need, uh, bodily speaking, right, to, to survive. There are things that are spiritual that are of greater significance. But still, we have sort of physical needs and food is part of that and just to, to come before God and, and ask for him to provide, to provide for those, those needs for, for our body, those basic needs, food, water, right, those basic provisions and just say, Lord, right, give this to us today, provide for us and to bring that request to the Father. And then he goes on, verse 12, and says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. As I said, this is something that Jesus himself would have no need to pray, not that he couldn't affirm other parts of, of the prayers, things that he would have said and affirmed, certainly. But here, this part is not for him, as though this is what Jesus himself would pray. He would have no need of praying it. But, of course, recognizing this is him teaching the disciples uh, and all of his followers and the crowds that have gathered there how to pray, he tells them, well, this is an important part of prayer, right? It, it, it's a request. It's certainly affirming our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness and saying, hey, just Father, as we have forgiven our debtors, our sin debtors, those who have wronged us have incurred sin debt, in a sense, toward us, and we have forgiven them in the same way, Father, forgive us our sin debt as well. And so coming before the Father and, and seeking forgiveness from him. And then it goes on, right? We get to verse 13. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. And here, you know, some translations, most I would say, it's fairly unanimous amongst scholars and translations that evil one uh, is a better translation than just deliver us from evil. I'd say at the end of the day, I, I sort of agree evil one, I think it fits the context better grammatically either as possible, certainly, but that in all likelihood evil one is, is what Jesus meant. At the end of the day, it doesn't really greatly change the meaning of things, right? It doesn't really change things. It's just sort of a nuance, whether it's deliver me from evil or from the evil one. But I'd say evil one is likely the, the right interpretation and translation here. And what's the sense here in verse 13? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? Certainly it's not God who's doing the tempting. God doesn't tempt. He does test, but he doesn't tempt us. But, but of course it doesn't here say that he's the one tempting. Right? It says, and lead us not into temptation. The idea here is that all around us in life, right, we're still sinful. There's still, still sin within us. Uh, and so we're prone to sin. And all around us are things that can tempt us to disobey the Lord, right, and sort of get caught up in sin. There's just temptation all around us. And so this is a plea with the Father to, as he leads us through life, to sort of steer us away from those situations in which we might be tempted to then sin. So it's saying, Lord, as you lead me through life, lead me not into some situation where I'm going to be tempted, not that it's the Lord doing the, the tempting, but that something in life will tempt me, and then I'll fall and stumble and sin. But rather, Lord, graciously lead me away from those things in life that will tempt me. That's sort of the sense of what's meant there. So, so right, as there's temptation all around, right, sort of steer me away from it so that I'm, I don't fall prey to that temptation. And then also, right, but deliver us 
from the evil one. And again, here the picture is all around, not only is there just sort of this temptation, but there's the evil one, there's the devil and, and all of his demons, and what are they seeking to do to trip us up in sin? They're seeking to tempt us, to cause, cause us to fall and stumble. And so, right, what is this petition? Well, deliver us. As the evil one is there seeking to attack us and trip us up and get us to sin, Lord, deliver us from him and from his attacks, right? That's the sense of what's being said there, that request and petition of the Father. And then we get to a little question here of, well, how do we end the Lord's Prayer, right? I'd say basically every translation, modern translation of the Bible, uh, I'm sure as you're sort of flipping yours open, whether it's NIV or maybe it's ESV or some other one or whatever, uh, the Lord's Prayer ends there, right? Deliver us from the evil one, and then it's done. But then you might be thinking, well, you know, well, as I grew up, and at least if you grew up in Protestant circles, right, if you grew up in Catholic circles and you grew up saying the Our Father, you're thinking, yeah, deliver us from the evil one, and it ends there. That, that's sort of the Catholic version. That's how it ends. But if you grew up in Protestant circles, you're thinking, well, hey, when I grew up reciting the Lord's Prayer, didn't I always close with, well, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, or maybe it was forever and ever, sort of same, same type of thing. Isn't that how the Lord's Prayer ends, right? Um, and that's sort of how we recite it, yet pretty much every translation will not include that. You might see some little note there, notation sort of explaining why it's not there. I'll, I'll sort of try to make it quick, but I think it's worth noting why there are differences in, in the way that people recite the Lord's Prayer. And, and put simply, uh, looking at, there's a whole host of, of New Testament manuscripts that we have throughout the ages, right? Greek manuscripts and even other languages and translations that are, that are early translations. Uh, and so as we look at them, Right. What we realize, and certainly they're thoroughly reliable, and, and any distinctions between one manuscript and another, it, it's like little itty-bitty teeny things. It, it's minuscule. Don't be concerned about, about sort of, is the Bible that we have today really the true Bible that was written way long ago? It, it thoroughly is, absolutely. Uh, but there are little nuanced distinctions between one manuscript and, and another here or there. And this is probably one of the bigger ones that I'd say that, that we sort of come to in the New Testament. And all of the most reliable and very early translations or manuscripts, I should say, of the New Testament, all the earliest, all of the best, end the Lord's Prayer at deliver us from the evil one, and then that's it, right? There's no for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, but at some point in time, some scribe who was writing, uh, this is sort of my theory about why he added it on, but I think he probably felt a little bit uncomfortable that the prayer just sort of seemed to end a, a little bit abruptly. There's no closing to it. There's no amen. There's no closing uh, doxology, which is sort of what that is, just sort of a word of praise, a doxology, the for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's just sort of like, lead us not into, not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, and then done. And so I think there's this feeling of something must be missing, and so I'll just sort of add something, and maybe it started in the margin and worked its way into the text, but at some point, some not-so-wise scribe decided to add this in, and then other people, as they were reproducing copies of his manuscript, also reproduced it. So there are some more recent, less reliable manuscripts that include, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In fact, there are actually even other manuscripts, again, not as reliable and more recent, that have actually slightly different doxologies or closings. Uh, some of them just end with, 
from the evil one, and then amen. They add that in, but not the for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. There are others that are for thine is the kingdom and the power, but then glory is not mentioned. So there are various added on doxologies and closings that clearly you have certain people throughout history who are copying these manuscripts and just some, for some reason feel the need for some sort of special closing to the Lord's Prayer, right? It needs to be closed off the right way and added this in. And ultimately most sort of came to, to unify with this this version of for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is this closing doxology. But it doesn't belong. It's not there. It wasn't originally part of scripture. It's not what Jesus said. It's just sort of some later, less reliable manuscripts that include this. But then you think, well, you know, so why do we say it today? What happened is when the King James Version of the Bible, I know this is a long story, but I want us to sort of understand why this is the case, why a lot of traditions close with that doxology. When the King James Version, which certainly sets a great precedent, for sort of English Protestantism, translated, right, from the Greek. They had their manuscripts, their Greek manuscripts, and they're translating into English. They had some of the more recent ones that weren't as reliable and included, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And so when they produced their English translation, that was in there, and it's sort of like the rest is history. Once it's sort of part of our tradition and it's in, in the King James and it's been said for hundreds of years, that's just sort of naturally uh, how people say it. But certainly as, as, as scholarship has advanced and, and we have all these manuscripts and sort of looking at them all, it's quite clear that the earliest and the best ones and the abundance of them don't have this. It doesn't belong there. Uh, it should end, but deliver us from the evil one, and that's it. I know that's sort of a long explanation, but if you're wondering why are there these different versions, now you know why. Uh, and I would say that the significant reason why Jesus sort of ends the way he does and doesn't close with sort of that doxology, not like the doxology that you sing, but a doxology here and amen. And I think there's great reason and intent and purpose. And I think part of what Jesus is pushing back against is sort of this mindset that, that prayer is all about special forms and formulas and you have to have the right words and you need to open a prayer this exact way. And then you need to sort of check all the boxes in the middle of you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do that and then surely if you want your prayer to count or at least be a good prayer then you have to end the right way right and whether that's for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen or at least an amen or something uh, and so I think it, it certainly this is something that was present amongst the, the pagans all around that they sort of had their formulaic prayers and you got to use the special words and if you don't it's like it's not pleasing to God and he's not going to answer it and so forth and he's sort of pushing back back against that mindset and saying, prayer is just, it's conversation with God. Put simply, that's what it is. It's us coming before our Heavenly Father, right, and just bearing our heart and talking to Him and doing it genuinely and authentically. And there's nothing wrong with the words, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Those are wonderful words and theologically true. And there's nothing wrong with closing that way, but we aren't obligated to close a prayer that way. We don't have to have specific forms. And what can start to happen is prayer ceases to be sort of genuine and authentic, and all too readily it can become just sort of reciting the right words that you're supposed to recite, and your heart's not in it, right? And you're not really meaning the words, it's just these are the words I'm supposed to use for a good prayer, so I use them, right? And so Jesus is pushing back against that, and I would say he, he very intentionally puts together a prayer that just sort of looks like real, genuine, authentic prayer, right? Heavenly Father, it, right? 
And then sort of a, a word of worship, right? Hallowed be your name, right? Let your name be revered. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Write some requests. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And done, right? You don't sort of have to end some magical special way for your prayer to count. And I think this is very much what he's, he, he's emphasizing here, especially if you interpret it in light of what he's just said. Right in verse 7, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. Don't be heaping up empty words that sort of, even if the words themselves are intrinsically fine, you're just sort of saying them in some sort of empty way and pointless way, it's a meaningless way in which you're saying them. Don't do that, right? Just sort of, right, don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Just sort of come before Him with reverence, genuinely, authentically, simply just bringing your request, and that's what prayer looks like. It's just authentic conversation, and it doesn't have to follow a specific form and formula. And so I'd say to go and tack on that doxology and insist upon it almost undermines what Jesus is sort of trying to say in the message he's getting across. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, I hear what you're saying, Steve, that sort of makes sense, but, but we sort of, in our prayers, seem to have a, a pretty stock closing to how we always close our prayers. We have this, in Jesus' name, amen, or in Christ's name, or in the name of our Lord and Savior, or something along those lines. And to say, well, you know, isn't that, that how we should pray? It seems like that, that's how everyone prays, and maybe based upon what I'm saying, or, or, or how I'm interpreting the Lord's Prayer, am I saying, well, no, we shouldn't be doing that. That's just sort of some little stock formula and special words that we're inserting at the end, uh, just to sort of make the prayer right. Uh, here's sort of what I would say about praying in that way and closing that way. There's certainly nothing wrong with closing in Jesus' name, amen. I know I might be like rocking people's world a little bit with, with what I have to say here. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with it, but I'd say it shouldn't be a legalism that we have to close our prayer with those words. Uh, and, and here's what I'd say. Our prayers are always going to be and should be in the name of Jesus. But for a prayer to be in Jesus' name is not substantively about closing with the words in Jesus' name. But rather, the idea and concept of praying in Christ's name is sort of understanding that it's, that it's in Christ, that it's through him that we are able to have access to the Father, right? We have been reconciled to him in Christ, and so we are now his, God's children, the Father's children in Christ, his adopted children, beloved by him. And now being reconciled and being the Father's beloved children in Christ, it's all in him, it's all through him, we now have access to the Father and can boldly and confidently bring our prayers and our requests to him. And that's the idea of praying in Jesus' name, that, that in every sense as we pray, it's in and through Christ that we can come before the Father and bring those prayers and bring those requests. And to be praying in the name of Jesus doesn't mean you have to use the words in Jesus' name, right? But rather, it's in a sense not about the words, but it's sort of about the heart or the spirit of the prayer. And in fact, I'd say, you know, try to find me in Scripture somewhere where a prayer ends with the exact words, in Jesus' name, amen and I'll sort of spare you the effort. You can go and you can look, but there's, there's none. There's not one. Now you might say, well, okay, you're not going to see it in Old Testament prayers, you know, that they're praying in Jesus' name. And you might say, well, you're not going to, as you see Jesus pray, you're not going to expect him to pray in his own name. That might seem a little bit bizarre. Uh, and, and in reality, we don't see a ton of other prayers in the New Testament era in the scriptures. Uh, you know, and that's not surprising if you think of how it's filled with a whole host of epistles. And so if you have, you know, someone like Paul writing to another church, 
church. He's directly addressing another church. He's not directly addressing God in a prayer. So even if he speaks of prayer, and he does, he speaks of how he's been praying for, the, for fellow Christians, how he's been praying for churches, but it's not the exact direct address to God. So we don't have a lot of instances of sort of real prayer in the New Testament, uh, you know, someone besides Christ coming before God and, and sort of offering up a prayer in the exact words. But where we do get it, we do get little snippets here and there of sort of direct address and words of prayer to God. Nowhere does it end with the exact words, in Jesus' name, amen, or even something like that in Christ's name. In fact, typically, it doesn't even end with amen. It just sort of ends, just like Jesus' prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, and it just sort of ends, right? And again, I'd say there's nothing wrong with, with, with saying the words, in Jesus' name, amen. That's how I pray. That's how I tend to pray. But to, to not utter those words in sort of an empty way, I think probably in reality we're thoroughly or at least oftentimes guilty of using those words because, well, isn't that just sort of how you let people know you're done with a prayer or you just sort of end your prayer? How else would anyone know if I don't sort of say, in Jesus' name, amen? And so they become sort of empty words that aren't really, there's no meaning to us. We just sort of utter them because that's our tradition and that's what we grew up with and that's what we do. And I would say here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is saying that that's not how you're to pray. You can use those words. Those words are wonderful and you can certainly use them and close your prayers with them. But if you do so, it needs to be genuine and heartfelt and you need to mean the words. You need to understand what's being said, that what you're saying is, well, it, it's in Christ that I can come before the Father and, and bring these requests to him, right? And do so boldly and confidently because I'm covered in his blood, right? I've been reconciled in him. And that's what it means to pray in Jesus's name. And you can use the words and that's wonderful and that's fine, but, but it isn't sort of this legalism and obligation. Uh, and even just sort of to follow that up, again, this is being said as one who closes his prayers that way, but I, I close them seeking to really mean them rather than just sort of their formulaic words that I utter for no reason other than that that's sort of what you do. But if you look at the history of the church, whether you want to look at the early church, again, typically how would prayers end? Either they just sort of ended or with amen. It wasn't typical. It would happen at times. It would be on occasion the case, but it wouldn't be typical to say, in Jesus' name, amen. They'd be praying in Jesus' name, but that didn't mean you had to utter those words. Uh, you know, you could certainly say, well, let's fast forward sort of through some of those bad years of the history of the church where they sort of lost track of the gospel and, and so forth, and, and sort of fast forward to, you know, well, we get to the Reformation. What about Protestants in that era? And, and sort of how, how, as they were being faithful to the Lord, you know, champions of the faith in those, that era, 1500s, 1600s, even 1700s. Again, the typical way of praying, you could open up some wonderful Puritan prayer book, and they typically either just end or end with amen and not in Jesus' name, amen. I'd say, really, if you look at the history, it, it sort of started around 200 years ago, um, and, and really it came up because of this reality sort of historically, that that was the era in which within Protestantism you saw a rise of liberal Protestantism, those who, who sort of said, well, you know, we don't really believe Jesus is, is God and is our Savior, uh, sort of a, maybe a Unitarian theology of one God, one person was sort of their theology, not one God, three persons. And so Jesus, he's just some good teacher, you know, uh, and that's sort of all he is. And, and as that teaching is arising and, and gaining momentum, as it did at that time in history, then you have sort of those who are faithful to biblical truth saying, 
you know, we want to distinguish ourselves from them. And so as we pray, we want to affirm Christ, who he is, what he's done for us, and not regard him just as a teacher like those other people. And so it became more and more ever increasingly normative to end prayers in Jesus' name, amen. And it, it sort of kept increasing to the point that it almost became mandatory. And sort of in our day and age today, we sort of feel like that's how you have to end a prayer. And if not, it's almost like it's, it's not acceptable or is that irreverent toward Christ. And so I guess in conclusion, my statement is we shouldn't be praying in sort of formulaic ways with, with empty words where we're just sort of saying the words and there's no meaning to it, that that's sort of what Jesus is talking about. Uh, but that doesn't mean we still can't pray in Jesus' name, amen. But if you're going to close your prayer that way, which is not a legalism, we're not obligated to, you can close with just amen or just a quick prayer and even no official closing. It's just conversation with God. But if you're going to close in Jesus' name, amen, which again is how I and my prayers, you need to mean it. It needs to be genuinely spoken and felt and be in your heart and not sort of just be these empty words that I'm just sort of spitting out just because that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian and say those words. So again, I might be, be rocking people's boats a little bit and it's like, I've never heard this. I just thought we're supposed to always use those words. Uh, and I would say it's not a legalism. I don't think we're obligated to use those exact words closing every pray prayer. It's certainly wonderful to use those words and affirm that biblical truth that our prayer is always in Christ's name, and so it's a wonderful thing to end that way, but I wouldn't force it as a legalism. And if you say them, always mean them. That would sort of be my two cents there. Because again, and we see this pattern really set here by Jesus, that prayer is just to be authentic conversation with God. And I, even sort of to, to drive home the point a little bit, I think of, well, you know, what about the day when, you know, we go to be with the Lord and we die and we're there with him in heaven or, or when Christ returns and there's the whole new created order. Every time we talk to God, are we going to close our sentence with, in Jesus' name, amen? I don't think so. I think that would feel a little awkward and forced. Uh, we would certainly understand that we're there in the presence of God through Christ, in him. But we wouldn't sort of force this legalism of we have to say these words or it doesn't count. And I'd say, well, if we can talk to God that way then, why not now? If we're coming before the Lord and talking to him, can't we just sort of bring our, our requests and our words of, of prayer and worship? Can't we just come before him and say it genuinely, authentically, in a heartfelt way? And I'd say that's what Jesus is driving home here. That's what prayer is to look like. Uh, and sort of along those lines, we'll sort of close off reading this passage. We still have two verses. But along those lines, sort of thinking of the Lord's Prayer and how it's often used, I grew up in a church where we recited it every Sunday. And I didn't really think anything of it. But if you really think about it, to recite it every Sunday sort of undermines the whole point of what the prayer is about. And so I would guard against using it that way. Again, the whole point of the, the prayer is sort of just genuinely, authentically becoming, coming before the Lord and, and, and bearing your heart to him, not about using special words. And yet what many churches have done is turn this prayer into sort of part of their Sunday liturgy where these are now special words that we're to offer up to God in prayer. And I think it's wonderful to recite the Lord's Prayer at times, but to turn it into sort of a rote liturgy is sort of undermining and missing the whole point of what the prayer is teaching us and driving home, which is that for, for authentic prayer, it doesn't have to be just sort of reciting the right and perfect words and proper words and formulas. It's just coming before the Lord reverently, authentically, just conversing with him, bearing our hearts. But then to, to close this off, verses 14 and 15, it's, it's part of this passage, right? Jesus says this, after, after ending the Lord's prayer, he says, for if you forgive, he's talking about He's spoken here uh, about forgiveness, right? And so he sort of picks up with that theme and says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And you could sort of look at this, and maybe at first glance you're like scratching your head. So does this seem to be saying like we have to earn forgiveness by forgiving other people, and if we don't, then we we won't be forgiven? That's not at all the sense in which Jesus means this. Rather, he's saying the person who extends forgiveness, that's good evidence of sincere saving faith. The person who truly has saving faith has experienced wondrous forgiveness in Christ and now has really a new heart in Christ, it's only natural for them to then overflow with forgiveness toward others. Not to say perfectly so, but that's something that you will likely see flowing out of their true saving faith. And so for the one who forgives, that's evidence of, of good evidence of saving faith, and they're forgiven and have salvation in that saving faith. And for the one who doesn't forgive, that's good evidence that, that they don't really understand the gospel. They, they don't really, they haven't experienced forgiveness in Christ, and they're sort of still living in, in sin and rebellion toward God and his ways, and their lack of forgiveness toward others is sort of evidence of their lack of saving faith, and therefore because they lack saving faith, right, they will not be forgiven. That's the sense of what what is spoken of here. But I kind of want to come back uh, again, big picture, and sort of say, well, you know, what's our, our takeaway here as we sort of look at the Lord's Prayer, what it's all about, what is Jesus teaching us here about prayer, and what it's to look like. Really, the bottom line is that prayer is just to be authentic, reverent conversation with God. Uh, that's what it is. It's just coming before the Lord, and we should always have a reverent heart toward, toward God as we come before him, and it's just bearing our hearts. It's just in that time as we come before the Lord, as we converse with him, it's bringing our requests, right? It can be confessing our sin. It can just be sort of praising him and worshiping him. It can be a whole host of things, but it's not about the special words and formulas. It's not about, uh, oh, I have to make sure my prayer is eloquent because other people are listening. It's a public prayer, and I want to seem all like I'm a great prayer, and I'm all eloquent, and I have the best prayers, right? It's not about all those things. It's just simply, authentically, genuinely, as we come before God, God, just bearing our hearts and talking to him. And that's what it is to pray to God. That's what's being said here. And so I just want to challenge this. As we think of our application, it's no different than what he was saying to, to those who were listening to him then. That it's as we pray, to pray in that way. Let our prayers not sort of be filled with empty words as maybe at times they can be, but just to be authentic, genuine, heartfelt words spoken to God uh, that really honor him and ultimately will, will cause a thriving in our prayer lives. And as our prayer lives thrive, there's going to be just wondrous joy that comes from that and wondrous blessing in our lives that comes from that. So let's heed what Jesus has to teach us here about prayer and the Lord's Prayer and let our prayers be genuine and authentic and reverent. Amen. And let's, speaking of prayer, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Father in heaven, what a joy and privilege it is to be able to come before you in prayer, to know that our prayer is thoroughly in and through Christ, in his name. It is only through what he has done for us that we can come before you cleansed in his blood, reconciled to you as your beloved children now and have confidence and boldness as we come before you and communicate with you and fellowship with you and bring our requests and our praise. And we thank you for the privilege of that and the joy of that. And Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us there would be a thriving in our prayer lives. And that we would heed what Jesus has to say here about prayer. All too often it can be easy to 
fill our prayers with words that are rather empty and maybe our hearts aren't in them. We're just saying what we think we're supposed to say, but they're empty words. But Lord, may our prayers always be reverent and genuine and authentic. And may they honor you in every way. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.